Good morning. Before I introduce our guest, um, his book, which is called Biblical Fracking Midrash for the Modern Christian, is available for sale. It's a wonderful book. I've already read it. It's fabulous. You're going to find that Frank is a, is a gifted storyteller, both through the air and, and on the page. Um, it's available for $16. You can buy it this morning by seeing Carrie Wade, who is related to Frank, um, following this class, and then Frank will also sign the book for you as well. Our, our guests this morning are Carrie. We, we're delighted to have you and Frank as well. Frank is um, the retired, um, he, he's not retiring, but he is technically retired. He was the rector of St. Albans in D.C., which was, um, is a wonderful parish on the, on the campus of Washington National Cathedral. And it's also um, the parish of, the former parish, thankfully, of Pat Petrash and Dennis Johnson, who, who are our members now, but who were there and were quite close to um, Dr. Wade. Frank also went on to become the, the interim dean of the cathedral, that little place up the hill from St. Albans. Um, and has done many, many other things across the church, including at, at Virginia Seminary. And we are delighted to have him as he talks about... Um, what I've, what I've read him describe as, as the peripheral characters in the Bible, the obscure saints, the, the people on the margins who, who are really interesting but that we sometimes myth, miss both in the Scriptures and in our own lives. Please welcome him warmly to the Dean's Forum. Good. Yes, sir. Thank you. Well, good. It's a real delight and a pleasure to be able to be here and to be in a, in a real Episcopal church. It's really, you know, it's always, it's always kind of like preaching at low tide, you know, when you're at, at an Episcopal church. There's nothing up here and everybody's back in the back. And uh, it, it really makes me feel at home. So I thank you for that gesture and uh, to have that. Uh, what I'd like to do with you all this morning is to talk with you about uh, the, the book and about the key words of the title to unpack the words midrash and fracking and what uh, what they mean and what they have to do with this approach to scripture and then spend some time talking about the stories that emerge from that and some of the stories that are that are in the book but begin to explore that and we'll have some time for discussion or questions or whatever at at the end so that and i understand we have uh, what time do we have to be out of here tina 10.15, okay, so we, all right, so we, we're in good shape, we got time. So, 2,500 years ago, 2,500 years ago, when the city of Rome was just beginning to expand beyond its borders on its way to making an empire, 2,500 years ago when Africans first started to use iron tools, and when China began working on the Great Wall, 2,500 years ago, when the Anasazi in the Colorado Plateau began to put pictographs on the, on the rocks around here, 2,500 years ago, a group of rabbis in Jerusalem began to wonder. They began to wonder. And one of the rabbis said, why, why didn't Adam talk Eve out of eating that apple? I wonder why Adam didn't talk Eve out of eating that apple. Well, you know, that's silly speculation at first glance. There's obviously no answer to the question. It's not in there. Scripture doesn't go there. There's no way to resolve that. Consequently, they never could figure out the absolute answer to a question like that. But as they wondered, as they raised that question, they discovered some unanticipated benefits. What they found was that in the context of faith, that kind of speculation is its own point and its own reward. 
Because the basis of all faith is the contemplation of things that we cannot grasp. That all faith statements end in a form of speculation, things that we cannot possibly know except by guessing. Beyond that, they found that their exercise was not just idle speculation like naming the shapes of the clouds or trying to follow the Brexit debate in England or anything like that. <laughs> but this kind of speculation had a sharper point. It was reaching for something that was wider and deeper. And so when they raised that question, why didn't Adam talk Eve out of eating the apple, they were actually exploring human nature and human relationships and the incredible consequences of missed opportunities. That's the kind of exercise that before God always bears interesting and valuable fruit. Their word for that kind of speculation was midrash. Midrash. M-I-D-R-A-S-H. It's a Hebrew word that means to inquire, to seek, to expound, to explore. And it became very prominent in Jewish study of scripture. And it particularly enriched their faith. And they developed over the years a midrash for the narrative stories, and they developed a midrash for the laws, and it became an important and enriching part of their life together. But 500 years after that initial speculation, when Christianity left and separated itself from Judaism, we Christians in the first century took the Hebrew scriptures, and we took the Hebrew history, we took the imagery, we took the mythology, but we didn't take Midrash. We didn't take it with us. Now, why? Well, nobody knows, but I'm a preacher, so not knowing doesn't slow me down for a minute. So, I think the reason that we didn't take it is that our ancestors, the first century Christians, had an eschatology, that is, they had an understanding about the end of the world, and they were convinced that the world was going to end Wednesday, Friday at the latest. The world is going to end right now. Well, that kind of thinking about where you are in life does not lend itself to speculation, to sitting around and wondering about Adam and Eve and talking each other out of eating the apple. Then what happened after the, the Christians figured out, well, maybe Jesus isn't coming right away, they looked around and found out that nobody liked them and they were suffering great periods of persecution. Persecution is not a great time for spe idle speculation. It's not a time for wondering. It's a time for saving your life. It's the day of the martyrs. And when the day of the martyrs was passed and the persecutions were over, then the Christians who had been dispersed all around and all behind places and things like that, when we finally came out of the closet, as it were, out into the open as a community, we found out that we had actually started to believe in Christ in different ways. And so we said, well, wait a minute, we've got to figure out what is orthodoxy. So we sat down and we started to write things like the Nicene Creed and stuff like that. <clears throat> None of that is the proper arena for Midrash. So by the time we got through with all that stuff, we were 400 years into our story, and Midrash had been left behind. So while it has been an enriching influence in Jewish life for 2,500 years, it really hasn't been much part of the Christian story. Now, it's not entirely absent. It's not entirely separate. Those of you who have studied or learned anything about Ignatian spirituality of uh, Ignatius Loyola, the 16th century, that uses imagination very richly and very warmly. One of the places where we do midrash all the time, I am sure that around the first part of January, this congregation will rise and sing lustily, We Three Kings, right? Epiphany. You're going to say, I'm sure you will. If you don't, Dean, make a note. Sing. Okay, you're going to sing that. Well, <clears throat> that's Midrash. 
because the Bible says nothing about kings, says nothing about three people. What the Bible says is that they were three gifts. And so when people started thinking about, well, how, how did that work? And they started painting pictures of it. It made sense to put a gift in the hand of each person. That's how you got three. But the Bible doesn't say that. So this story goes beyond that. Then, of course, the purpose of the story is to illustrate that God reveals the coming of Jesus Christ outside of the faith community. The important thing about these guys is not that they were kings or anything else. It's that they were not Jews, that they were outside of the faith story. And so it's the time that we talk about all that sort of thing. So when we decide that they are, in fact, kings, that's all made up. That's all made up. We don't, it doesn't say that at all. And then, of course, all of us know that their names are Caspar, Belchior, and, and Balthazar, and Melchior, you know, which they aren't. And that's Midrash. That's going beyond. But what makes it work is that it's consistent with the basic meaning of the story. It's not wild. It's not, it's not saying that they arrived on unicorns and went off in spaceships. It doesn't, you know, it's, it's consistent with the story. So it says that they came, one from Africa, one from Asia, and one from Europe, and they were kings. On a, that's fine. It just enriches the story. It just goes beyond. That's Midrash. That's Christian Midrash. But we don't do it very much. And we have missed something very important by not allowing ourselves the possibilities for Midrash. The book Biblical Fracking, Midrash for the Modern Christian, is an attempt to claim that for us. And that's what we're talking about here. Now, when we do that, a distinction needs to be made. Fracking, and we're going to talk about that term in just a moment, fracking is derived from Midrash. But it's distinct. Midrash is Jewish. Midrash is formed in the Jewish tradition. It is steeped in that tradition. It belongs to that tradition. And it's their word. Fracking is a Christian word. It's a Christian word because I made it up and I'm a Christian. And so it is steeped in the Christian tradition. And it's important when we do this sort of a thing that we recognize the integrity of those that we learn from. Chaucer's Canterbury Tales is not a Hajj. Hajj is the Muslim pilgrimage. It's a pilgrimage, but it's not that. Okay. When you go to Cathedral Ridge, you are not going to an ashram. That's Hindu. That's their word. We have another word for it. So I want to I make sure that when we talk about Midrash, that we are certainly not claiming that anybody like me could speak with authority from the Jewish tradition. I cannot. I am not Jewish. I can't do that. So Midrash is that word, and it has that integrity to it. So we want to hone that. So that's the meaning of midrash. The other word is fracking. Fracking is a jarring word. It is controversial. It has a lot of connotations, mixed connotations. Most of them are negative. You know, I grew up and spent the first 17 years of my ordained ministry in West Virginia. Fracking is a big deal there. And fracking is you know, a controversial word. But here I will admit before you, the title of a book is, first of all, meant to catch your eye. Okay? That's what it's for. And that's why it's there. It catches your eye. But it is also there because it actually says something about the nature of, the, of what's in the book. And here's how the fracking part works. Fracking is the system by which you force liquid or under pressure into the earth, and it takes treasure, oil, gas, from the cracks and seams of the earth. And it is very controversial. It is very ripe for abuse, but it, he, it yields great rewards. Biblical fracking is reaching into the cracks and crevices of the Bible, pulling out the treasure that's there, and it is subject to abuse, it is controversial, and it yields great rewards. Now, the abuse that biblical fracking is subject to is that when you take your imagination and begin to walk in Scripture, 
taking that old question about Adam and Eve, you know, you could say that, well, you know, you, you can do terrible things there. You can say, well, the reason Adam didn't talk Eve out of that is that he was a wimp and that men really ought to be pushing their wives around. And if Adam, Adam wasn't such a wimp, you know, we wouldn't be here. That's a horrible abuse of scripture, but you could do it if that's what you wanted to do with that story, okay? So fracking is subject to abuse and uh, like geological fracking. So what, we're, what we need to do is to recognize that fracking needs some help to keep us on track. So biblical fracking is something that should be done like all reading of scripture should be done in the context of community. The community of those who have gone before us, which is the source of orthodoxy and the tradition and what we've learned, but also the context of the community in which we live. That's what is done. The, the Bible itself is subject to great abuse and God knows there's plenty of examples of that. You know, I think the Bible is like a person. If you torture it long enough, you can get it to say anything you'd really like to hear. And so, you know, people have been doing that for years. Well, fracking is even more ripe for that because there's really no scriptural story to keep you on track. So we need, we need the community of those who have gone before us, the people who, you know, who have shaped our faith and our understanding. We want to be consistent with that, and we need the community around us, and that holds us together. So... How does biblical fracking work? Well, there are many ways to read the Bible. Many ways to read the Bible. The most important and the most traditional is to read it devotionally. For 4,000 years, people have been going to these stories and they have, it's the meeting ground. It's where we meet God. And in many ways, the Bible works like a fishing hole. You know, that for years, people have been going to this spot on the river and that's where they catch fish. And that means if you go there, you have a better chance of catching fish than if you went someplace else. Doesn't mean you'll automatically catch fish. That's the way scripture works. The Bible is where people have been going for 4,000 years to hear the word of God spoken to them. And that's why we go there. So the most important and the best way to read the Bible is devotionally. But also scholars read it as ancient history, as linguistic development, as textual development, and all kinds of things like that. The Bible contributes to literature. If you're going to understand American literature and English literature, you, you know, and you've got to know the Bible to know what they're talking about and all that sort of thing. Fracking involves something a little bit different. Fracking involves what I call forensic reading. Forensic reading. Forensic has to do with testimony and that sort of thing. And so it's looking for clues. Looking for clues, the discordant piece, the little thing that allows you to begin to explore in a different direction. The Bible is, by and large, a spare document. It doesn't give a lot of details, except for the book of Leviticus, which gives way too much. You don't want to go there. But for the most part, the Bible is a very spare document, and it doesn't give many details. So you can go to the details, and you can begin to look at a detail and open the door, and you're on the way to biblical fracking. For example, all four Gospels tell the story of the feeding of the multitudes, Jesus feeding the multitudes. And it's a great story. It's full of symbolism. It's a powerful thing. It's a you know, very important part of our story and everything like that. In John's account of the feeding of the 5,000, uh, it says that they were all out there in the woods or wherever they were, and they were listening, and people were getting hungry. And Jesus says, okay, to the disciples, okay, you all take care of this, feed them. And they say, well, what are we going to do with that? And so Andrew says, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Now stop right there. What is that kid doing with five loaves of bread and two fish? That's a lot of food. What's that kid doing with that? Okay, fracking the story, this is what I do. I think he was there to sell it. I think he was there to sell it. I think his mom and his dad recognized that, you know, there's gonna be a lot of people around Jesus and they're gonna get hungry and we can make a buck off of it. Now they may have been the first people to try and make a buck off of Jesus, but <laughs> God knows they're not the last. So, 
So they said, okay, so mom made five loaves of bread. Dad went out and caught two fish. And they said to Junior, all right, now you go and you keep this under your coat until these people are really hungry, and then you sell it. I think that's what he did. I think he walked along with the whole tribe. He did the whole thing. He was there the whole time, and they got hungry. And so he went up to the main guy, Andrew, and he said, I've got five loaves and two fish here. I think that Andrew bought them. I, I assume, Andrew's a nice guy, so I assume he paid a fair price. He bought the fish, and then here's what I think would happen. I don't think the kid was the least bit interested in all this stuff that Jesus was talking about. Jesus wasn't actually talking you know, to kids. He was talking to adults. And I think the kid had tuned the whole thing out. And I think what happened is this. I think that he gave him the bread, gave him the fish, took the money, and I think he went home. And I think he had done his job and he went home. But I also think he missed the miracle. He wasn't there when Jesus fed 5,000 people with it. And what makes that important, the hook on it, the thing that brings it home, is this. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I wonder how many people there are around here who, because they were just doing their job, missed the miracles that were going on <coughs> all around them. That's fracking. That's bringing that story. That's not in the story, but it's an implication of the story that you, okay, now we're talking about you and me. Now you're talking about nose to the grindstone, got to get it done, get up, get going, all that kind of stuff that we got to do, and missing the, the wonder around, thank you, Dennis, missing the, the miracles that go on around us, the big ones and the little ones. That's fracking the story. Another story in there. The wedding at Cana in Galilee. The wedding at Cana in Galilee. And it's a famous story. Supposedly in John's gospel, that's Jesus' first miracle and all that. Story is that Jesus and some of his friends come to the wedding in Cana, and they're there, and they run out of wine. They were not our kind of people. You know, we know that. But that's all right. That's all right. They ran out of wine. So they ran out of wine, and so Mary goes up to Jesus, and she says, they ran out of wine. He says, what do you want me to do about it? It's not my time. And in the manner of mothers from the beginning of creation until it ends, ignored completely what Jesus was saying, said to the servants over there, do whatever he tells you and walks off. Now, the fracking question is this, how does she know he can do anything? How does she know he can do that? You. My mother thought I was kind of special, but it would never have occurred to her that I could solve the problem of what we're out of wine at a, at a re wedding reception. Why does she think he can do anything? Here we go, fracking. I think he's been doing that around. I, I don't think they've been to the liquor store in years from their place. You know, <laughs> I, think, I think he's been cranking out wine there in the house. I also think the feeding of the 5,000 was field tested several times in the kitchen down there. I think that the little Joseph and Mary family had a, their own little HMO to take care of scratches and things with the healing. Okay, so I, I think that that's how he knew, how she knew. It's the only way she could know. She saw him do it. Okay, now, how does that become important? Well, I think that everybody who has a gift from God has to learn how to use it, has to learn what it means. The abilities that we have, the sensibilities that we have, the, you know, the, the, the gifts that we have been given by God, all of those things create possibilities, but we have to learn how to use them. And I think Jesus had to learn how to use his gifts as well. And I think he was doing that around the house. I think he was learning. But by the same token, you and I are gifted and we have to learn how to use our gifts as well. Now, in this book, there are numbers, there are 20 different stories that go like that. 
about fracking, about exploring it in different ways. One thing to know, this is not the place to start if you're beginning to read the Bible. Okay, the most important way to read the Bible is to read what's in the Bible. When I was in seminary, one of the best advice I got from a professor was, you know, he told me that, that he thought that, that the Bible would shed a lot of light on the commentaries for me. So that was, you know, I was, I was, I was, I was reading all the extra stuff and not actually reading the text. And so, okay, that was a good point. So we take that. But if you're going to start reading the Bible, then read the Bible. This is downstream. This is a, a later thing. This, is, this comes after that. So don't, don't start here. But if you're here, it's a wonderful way to learn. There are some wonderful stories in there that some others that I think that, that are interesting that I'd like to hold up before you as examples. Uh, for example, uh, one of the great stories of the Old Testament is a story of the sacrifice of Isaac. It's a classical classic uh, ancient story and context, and uh, it's an important part of the Judeo-Christian tradition. It's also an important part of Islam, because in Islam, the same story is told, only it's the sacrifice of Ishmael, so there was the, the, you know, the, the person that they looked to for their origin. And so it's a very dramatic story, and it's dramatically and wonderfully told. And there's a story of Abraham, who's called now to, he's, been his whole life uh, waiting for a child who would carry his name into the future, and the child doesn't come and is finally born late in life, so late in life and so much of a surprise that the child's name is laughter. That's what Isaac means. That's, it, was, it was so delighted with this child and the surprise of this child that they named the child laughter. Laughter. Now, that's, that says a lot. So... But then the message is, I want you to sacrifice Isaac. I want you to sacrifice Isaac. And, you know, Abraham, that's a terrible thing for him to have to consider because he is the very identity of faithfulness. He's the whole idea in Scripture. He's the opposite number to Adam. Adam is disobedient. Abraham is obedient. His faithfulness defines him and defines faith forever. That's the centerpiece of what he is. But this is his kid. This is the kid of his own age, the kid of the child of promise. And it's a terrible, terrible dilemma for Abraham. But Abraham comes to the conclusion that he will be faithful. He will be faithful and he will trust God and he will sacrifice his son. And so the story comes out and it's very dramatically told that Isaac keeps saying, well, gee, dad, where's the sacrificial animal? Well, the Lord will provide, you know, and it's just a gut-wrenching thing to read. But if you're going to frack the story, what I want to suggest is what was it like for Abraham and Sarah the night before he left for the mountain the night before. Okay, there's no story about that. You, if you, it's midrash. You have to frack the story. You have to, you know, there's nothing to tell you about that dynamic. But here's what I think went on. I think he didn't tell her. I think he didn't tell her. And a couple of reasons for that. One is that it's a patriarchal system. He doesn't have to tell her. And it's also true that people who have a direct pipeline to God tend not to be terribly collaborative in their leadership style. Enough said about that. But, you know, he doesn't have to tell her. The other thing is that Sarah has shown that she is not entirely without resources here. Because Sarah, when had given her maid to Abraham to have a child by, that was not a thing you'd recommend now, but that's was the way it was done then because they didn't have children. That was a surrogate mother. And then when she had a child, she got all over Abraham and convinced him to drive Hagar and the other child away. And Abraham didn't want to do it, but she banged on him enough, and he did it. So Sarah is a persuasive force, a persuasive force. One of the, one of the greatest illustrations I've ever heard, my my. Uh, my son-in-law's parents, wonderful people, you know, had a kind of a tumultuous relationship, which they enjoyed and all that. And at one point, the, one of the kids came in and said to their dad, you know, where's mother? 
And his answer was, she's off the coast gathering strength, which I, <laughs> which I, <laughs> Sarah was like that, you know, that Sarah would, is off the coast gathering strength, you know, you can see her coming. So she is not without persuasive power. So I don't think Abraham wanted to put up with that. And I don't think he told her. And so Abraham and Sarah have been together for a long time. And I think Sarah knows that something's going on. And now Sarah is trying to respond to the absence of information in her most intimate relationship. And Abraham is trying to make sure that the information stays absent. And she can feel it. And he can feel it. And I think it bore on them terribly. And I think that there's nobody in here who has ever been part of a marriage who does not know the weight of silence and the thing that hasn't been spoken. And we all know. And I think that's what they did. And so Abraham went off the next morning and off they went. And of course, God provided a ram and Isaac was not sacrificed and they came back. And so now the question is, did he tell her? Did he tell her what he almost did? I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think he did. And I think that the weight of that was a dark hole in their relationship for the rest of their lives. I think that's <coughs> very contemporary. I think that people do that all the time, not quite at this scale, but I think it happens all the time. You know, the, you know, the very meaning of fidelity in a marriage is its openness. It doesn't have to do with sex, it has to do with sharing. You know, if fidelity meant, you know, not having sex with other people, then fidelity would be a negative concept. That is, it'd be something you can accomplish by not doing something. It doesn't work that way. Fidelity is the open integration of the, two li of the lives of the two people. That's what it is. And so in this case, I think Abraham was unfaithful. And that infidelity on his part in that understanding was a burden that that marriage had to carry for the rest of his life. I don't know how they resolved it. You know, I don't know how to go beyond that. But that's where I think it goes. And I think in that way, it becomes a very contemporary story. In many ways, with more to say to us in this room than the question of the sacrifice of Isaac has to say. Although all of us who are parents recognize the temporary validity of the idea of child sacrifice. I mean, I think every parent has to admit that. But, that, but that's not really the point of the story. The point of the story, if you frack the story, is about fidelity, about openness, and how it can be costly and how it doesn't happen. So that's another story with that. Let me stop there. We can, I can describe some other stories, but let me see if any of this about fracking or midrash raises any questions for you. We've got, some we got plenty, of plenty of time. Yes, ma'am. It is not, it is, scripture does not tell us. I, I do not know. Uh, I, you know, uh, but, but actually, as the story is told, that Abraham has Isaac on the altar tied down. Well, you know, you know Isaac may not be the sharpest knife in the drawer, but you could figure that one out. You know, and what, what, so, so my, guess is, my guess is yes, but it, but it isn't explicitly known and told. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Talk about the feeding of the 5,000. Yes, sir. In contemporary times, you can call that a caravan of 5,000. Yeah. And what did Jesus do? He fed them. Yes. <laughs> yeah, he did. He did. Good. Good point. Yes, sir. Back in the back. I don't know how involved you were with the write-up of this um, presentation, but one of the things that it mentioned was that the, the fracking process is a narrow way can you talk a little bit more about that, if that's something that... A narrow a, a, way? Yes, a point you were making. 
Oh, okay, then it, it may have just been something that ended up in, in our description of it. Yeah, I, I, don't, uh, I don't think of, fr I think actually fracking in, in, in the way I'm talking about it is a, is a broader way of, of understanding scripture. So I'm, I'm not quite sure. Uh, you know, I, I, as a person who talks for a living, I don't always remember what I say. So I, I, may, I, may, have, I may have said something like that, but I, I, I don't know the, the connection. Anything else? Or we talk about some other stories. Uh, yes, sir. There's a wait. Wait for Tina's got the microphone here. Could you talk a little bit about what Midrash says about the nature of Scripture? That's that's a that's a good question. I think there, I think most of it is by implication, at least to my knowledge. Speak. I mean, I'm sure that there are scholars who could quote things. I can't do that, but I think that that one of the things that 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 Midrash says about about Scripture a theology of scripture is that that the a great deal a great deal of the of the inspiration of scripture takes place in the reading of it and not just the writing of it that the that the a lot of people understand scripture to be to be inspired because God inspired Isaiah and that we need to go back and find out what God and Isaiah talked about Another view of that is that God continues to inspire and that God inspired you know, the translators and that God inspires, and when we're together, God inspires the reading, which is one of the reasons we pray scripture, that's Lectio Divina and all that kind of stuff. So Midrash, I think, assumes that the, that the inspirational process of scripture continues into the reading and beyond. I, that's, that's my understanding. Now, again, you know, there, if there's a serious Jewish scholar here, I'm out and you're in, so, <laughs> but that's what I think it does. Uh, yes, sir. You've talked about Midrash in the context of stories. <clears throat> yes, sir. But I think most of us know that a lot of Midrash, I don't know whether you call this Midrash, so I, interesting your response, but in terms of language, I think, you know, anyone who tries to interpret the New Testament and is dealing with Koine Greek knows the beauty of Greek is it's so subtle. Yeah. So the word logos has three different meanings. Right. Would you agree that a lot of um, interpretation of scripture is it's around dealing with the language, the words themselves? And I yes, know sir. that's very much very Jewish, but no. isn't that a kind of form of midrash? Because if you here's a word that has been say translated as X. And that even in many translations, but then you begin to really dig into it and you realize it has a much richer meaning and then you sort of riff right. on that. Yeah, right. That's not a story, but the word kind of, yeah. in, in the subtlety of Greek and Hebrew, it can almost, <laughs> comes, becomes a story, doesn't it? Right. It does. You're, ex you're exactly right. And, you know, I'm, uh, I, I, that's why I believe in the continuing inspiration and revelation. If, if I thought that I could only understand, I'll go pick up Isaiah again, I could only understand Isaiah by knowing all of those nuances of Hebrew or in the Septuagint, the Greek, you know, yeah, I couldn't do it. I mean, I, I'm not that good a linguist, and so I would have to give up. I really believe that, 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 the, that the scripture, as I say, is a meeting ground. And we go to that ground, and it's the ground there, it's the place where we meet the living God. And in that, and in the way that you're talking about, all translating of scripture, all reading of scripture, is in fact in an embryonic form, midrash, because you're because you're making a you know a, a, an assumption about that. That logos has three meanings, and it, and I'm going to work with this one. That's a, that's a, that's a midrash kind of thing to do. It doesn't fit that definition, but it's a midrash kind of thing to do. And you're exactly right. And it, because if uh, if in constitutional law you'd be being an originalist, if you're if you're going to be a scriptural originalist, that is the only real truth belongs in the mind of the of Isaiah and God. You know, I, that's the, you come up against all the difficulties you're talking about. I, so I, I agree with you heartily. But I, I would hold up that that the very process is is a mini midrash if there is such a thing to do that because we all do it. Any other questions? We'll tell some more stories. Yes, sir. Related to what this gentleman just said, uh, the word uh, fear of God, fear of God, uh, always uh, bothered me. I mean, as a, as a as a lifelong uh, Roman Catholic, actually, 
I uh, always interpreted fear of God as that you, you ought to be scared to hell uh, uh, all the time about what God's going to do to you uh, because of what you're doing, what you're doing to someone else. Uh, my, uh, a rabbi friend of mine said it, a better translation is, is awe, and he gave some other words right. that, that are right. synonymous with, right. with awe, which, which to me uh, uh, were much more satisfactory. Now, what's your take? Since, since the, the question of uh, Midrash as interpreting uh, language uh, came up, what's your take on fear of God? Well, Because I, fear of God is so often uh, repeated in, in the Psalms and other places. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I mean, that's, a, that's, a, that's a, a, a good question, and let me, let me speak to it. That's not exactly a Midrash question, but it's a good question, and I think it's an important question. The, uh, you know, the, you know, the, 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 fear, the fear of God, as it has been promulgated and used in, in, in translation, has generally made fearful the very people who probably don't need to be afraid and has gotten over the heads of the people who actually should be afraid of God. But your, your rabbi friend is quite right. The, the richer word is awe and, and respect and, and that sort of thing. Uh, you know, fear you know, comes from, you know, language is dynamic and it changes and, and, and fear is not quite the right word for, for us anymore. You know, it has to do with, with respect. I mean, God is the creator of reality and, you know, we, when we violate reality in any of its forms, theological or environmental or any other ways, you know, we should be very much aware that we are violating, you know, the, 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 the Godhead himself. So. Uh, fear, I think, is not the right word because it implies almost that God is a thug of some kind, and that you know that you should fear God the way you would fear a, you know, a, you know, hearing a window break in your house in the middle of the night. That that's not that's not what it means. So I, I agree with your rabbi friend with that. Hi, thank you so much for coming and speaking with us. Thank you. Um, I was wondering a little bit about you know when you were talking about the story of Isaac and you know of the Abraham and Sarah's relationship. I mean, there's so many sort of layers of kind of historic and cultural kind of yeah. understanding there that it seems difficult for us to to go back and sort of penetrate right. Right. and and you're sort of warning at the beginning that this is a sort of de somewhat dangerous enterprise really mm -hmm. kind of hit home are there some parts of the the bible where those sort of that that kind of cultural layer you you have sort of said as you've if you've done this work like I can't put myself in that person's right. head because there's just there's so there's so much right. to get through. Or yeah, I, yes, there there are, and, and you're exactly right. There are tremendous cultural differences. I mean, Abraham and Sarah, their, I mean, their marriage doesn't make any sense, you know, in 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 our terms. So I think that what we need to to reach for is is our common humanity, uh, which which tends to transcend the cultural filters that we put on it. Okay, so, so I think that in, you know, in thinking of Abraham and Sarah and this great weight of silence between them, I think that's human. I, I, I do. I, and I, Sarah's resources you know, in addressing that are culturally determined. You know, and and, and I, you know, I, I don't argue with that. What, what a 21st century marriage ought to do about you know, the silence between them is quite different from what a you know, 1,800 years before Christ, nomadic family. You know, that those are just culture, great, really culture different. So I think what you're reaching for in, in doing this is our common humanity, not to, to go through the, not to get caught in the in the cultural filters. I mean, because you know, that to to try to make uh, Sarah, you know, a prototype of women's liberation or something like that. I mean, that is not, that is not their ball game at all. I mean, she, she's not there, hasn't, doesn't want to go there. You know, it's, that's not there. So it's a question of our common humanity. Is the, that's, the, that's the piece you're looking for. You mentioned initially the uh, potential perceived dangers of either midrash or fracking. Yes, sir. And I'm curious, and as you meet with congregations, um, are there some who see this as uh, threatening? Mm -hmm. uh, they're really coming yep. to church for uh, for answers, for certainty. Right. And, yes. Uh, so, how do you uh, counter the fact that people suddenly 
see that there's certainty, a certainty is sort of uh, slipping away with people getting off into wild areas? Well, yeah, I, I, that's, that's a good question. In fact, I have had that. People have been, uh, you know, kind of concerned about it and uh, of dealing with, with, with scripture this way that uh, I had you know, a response that said, you know, the, the only thing that's important is the prophecy, that the prophecy was given and the prophecy was filled out. That's the only thing that's important. And, you know, basically, you know, I'm going to say what I'm going to say, but the fact, you know, I'm going home tomorrow. I mean, you don't have, you don't have to put, <laughs> you don't have to put up with me forever. You know, I'm, I'm gone, so forget him. You know, you, but it's, it's not where everybody is, and I, and I respect that. It's, you know, I, I would not want to do that. I, you know, one of the images I have of a parish church, of a cathedral congregation or whatever, is that a church is, is like a sailboat. You know, it's, it's got an anchor and it's got a sail. And there's sometimes when you need the anchor and there's sometimes when you need the sail. And, and nobody's ever has the same need at the same time. So that there are people whose lives are such that they really need to hold on to something that, that's not changing. What, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, that kind of thing. And that's certainly part of our faith. There are other people for whom the sails are up and they're wondering, and Midrash is for sailing. You know, it's, and, and it doesn't, I and mean, I, I, I make no case whatever, you know, as being a bad thing that somebody doesn't want to go there. I, I don't want to do that. I'm not, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing at all. I, you know, that's a legitimate part of the story. And this is not the whole story. This is not everything that you need to know about scripture or life or anything like that. But, uh, but, it, but I, think, I think it has a role to play, but I don't think it's everybody's role all the time. So, and as I say, if, you're, if, if, I'm, uh, if, if what I'm saying is troubling to you, uh, take comfort in the fact that uh, tomorrow morning I'll be heading back to Washington. So, <laughs> so you don't have to listen to that. So, any others? And we'll talk about some other stories for a minute. What do you want? Any other questions? Well, there are a couple of other stories to uh, to deal with, and I'll just hold them up and do this kind of kind of briefly because then we'll, we'll have to go. And if, if you want some books, they're up up here. We'll let that, that be there. But a, a couple of stories that are that are in there, I'll hold up for you. Uh, one has to do with the kind of the Christmas story, and uh, the uh, you know the Virgin Mary uh, has a cultic following and it's cultic in the best sense of the word as the right proper use of it you know a, a, a life centered on a person and a very important thing and she is much admired for her obedience and and that's and that's a wonderful thing and that's a model worth holding up and it's a thing worth saying and, it, and knowing and it's a very important part of our story and and everything like that but the question the point is that if Mary is to be held as an example for obedience, then you have to realize that there had to be an equal and opposite opportunity to disobey. You know, nobody says, nobody gets any credit for saying, well, you know, I always obey the law of gravity. You know, you don't do that. You know, that, that I am, you know, I, I could tell you I am absolutely committed to continuing the aging process. Well, thank you very much. It's not, you know, <laughs> that you, you know, no, you ain't got any choices about that, so you don't get to do that. Okay, but, but Mary gets credit for, for obedience. Now, what that does in fracking the story is it raises the possibility, maybe Mary wasn't the first one he asked. Maybe Gabriel asked somebody and they said, uh-uh. So I invented Mary of Bethlehem. And Mary of Bethlehem, pure invention of mine, Mary of Bethlehem at least solves the logistical problem of getting a pregnant woman from Nazareth to Bethlehem. So we, you know, she's already there. So, that, so there was some advantage that came with that. And I think that Mary of Bethlehem was, got the story and looked around and said, you want me to what? You want me to tell my fiance that I'm pregnant and he knows he's not the father, and I'm going to tell him this angel story. Now that would have been that would go further in the first century than it does now, but it didn't go a long way. And you know, my dad is coming home in a little bit, and right now, as a virgin, unmarried daughter, I am a financial asset to the family, 
And if I cease to be that asset, I will be a liability which he will have to carry for the rest of his days and provide for me. Do you want me to tell my dad that? Uh-uh. And Mary of Bethlehem becomes a picture of everybody, I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands, but I could, everybody who knows exactly what God wants done and looked at the consequences of doing it and said, no thank you. Everybody who has ever looked around and known, known for a fact what God would want done in this situation and found it intimidating and scary and said, uh-uh, is a follower of Mary of Bethlehem. And my theory is that Mary of Nazareth has a better organized following, but Mary of Bethlehem has a larger one. <coughs> I think there's a lot of those. So a couple of other things. You all didn't know, Moses had a wife and two children, which he left behind at the time of the Exodus. We're gonna explore that. Why, why would he do that? What was that like? Jesus had four brothers. Can you imagine what it would be like to have Jesus for a brother? Unpack that a little bit. Peter had a wife. St. Paul had a sister. What would that be like? Then you take Herod and Pilate, it had been a new word for these guys, and that is an anti-martyr. A martyr that we admire so greatly, St. John, all those others, the martyrs that we admire are people who give themselves, give their life for a great cause. An anti-martyr is someone who gives somebody else's life for a little cause. And that's Herod and Pilate, and so their stories are unpacked. The rich young man, the fracking point about the rich young man who comes to Jesus and says, you know, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? The point to know about that is that he showed up as Jesus was getting ready to leave on a journey. Now, why would he pick that hour? Why would he pick that moment? I think the answer is he really didn't want anything other than an affirmation. He didn't really want to know. He wanted Jesus to pat him on the head and tell him, you're a good guy, you know, go and keep it up and keep going. But Jesus didn't do that. You know, they, and so that story turns on that. But the young man, you know, he had it timed out. You know, all the clergy know about the people who come out of church and, you know, and ask the meaning of life while you're standing there in the reception. You know, they don't really want the answer. You know, they want a stamp. So I'm going to stop at this point. And so if you would like a book, they're back here. And uh, thank you all very much. Nice. Thank you for letting me come. Thank you.